Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And uh, it's Dr. Ward here, I'm your local friendly ER doc. And it's a pleasure to introduce our uh, special guest, Dr. Candelina Airy. So I'm Dr. Candelina Airy, working in emergency psychiatry care, providing counseling and therapeutic interventions in the emergency department. The last couple episodes, we've been trying to bring the travel back into travel medicine. We talked Mm -hmm. about the traveling bug tuberculosis. We covered some important things that you can do to sleep and improve your sleep health while traveling. And of course, we went totally off topic medically and spent an entire episode talking about travel stories and tips. To bring it back around, traveling can certainly be very stressful on people in a variety of ways. And so I thought this week we would dive deep into stress and mental health in general. A lot of lay people and even some, even some medical professionals aren't up to date about the uh, nuances of different roles different mental health clinicians play. What types of therapies might you do? My specialization is crisis management, of course, and then there's trauma, domestic violence, and addictions. Those are my specialties. My Therapeutic background is CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, about changing belief systems, and also narrative therapy, where you listen to uh, the patient's story and why they're in crisis or why they're experiencing the situation from their perspective without labeling or judgment. Before we get further in detail to what those actually mean, let me ask, are you a world traveler? I do like to travel. Why don't you tell us perhaps one of your favorite travel stories? 
So I've done a lot of traveling recently. I just went to China in March for three and a half weeks. Going to China was very different. And even though the trip was extremely exciting and I was looking forward to it, there was anxiety about the rumors I have heard about, the censorship of the country, how how would I seek support if something were to happen, and then also just the cultural barriers and not really knowing about the culture specifically and then also mm-hmm. the traveling itself. Some people get very anxious on long airplanes. So what I did is I really focused on what the flight plan was. I researched what the flight plan would be. And I learned that we don't fly directly over the Pacific Ocean. We fly up, kind of go over Russia, and dro- well, not in Russia, but along the landscape, and drop down through that side of the world. And so we're not too far from land. I was going to say, that's a pretty cool coping mechanism of looking things up and actually uh, informing yourself. So, Candelina, I I think we're going to hear more about this later in terms of your specialty, but looking things up and kind of bringing knowledge to the forefront of your consciousness rather than letting these thoughts and feelings kind of stew in the background, um, this is a little bit a part of CBT, isn't it? Kind of examining the feeling and and examining the, the thought processes behind it to see if you can overcome an anxiety. Right. So co- CBT, where cognitive behavioral therapy, really works on changing the negative belief system. So right. we, in society, we kind of grab onto negative notions or thoughts and they kind of stick with that and they become part of our belief system whether it's handed down generationally or through society and it takes a long time to overcome negative beliefs but if you focus and you educate yourself and you challenge yourself you can overcome that and so let's go into the history a little bit of of psych you didn't think i was going to let you guys get away without some time travel did you do history let's do history the very first psychiatric hospital ever documented or written down was way back in 705 before Christian era. And it was built by Muslims in Cairo with a follow-up or satellite hospital in Damascus. These hospitals were known as Bimaristans, often contracted to Maristan. And that's from the Persian words Bimar, which is an ill person, and Stan, which is a place. And once you learn the etymology for that, kind of makes all those Russian satellite countries a little bit less impressive, right? Kazakhstan, the place of Kazakhstan. Yeah. <laughs> it does, yeah, you're absolutely right. Just stand, stand, stand. So in the Islamic world, these Bimar stands were actually described by European travelers, and they wrote just how amazed they were at the care and kindness shown to lunatics. That's a, that's a different time. They use different words. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, this was also, the behavior was believed to be linked to the moon. And truthfully, we in the ER and internal medicine still hold to a little bit of that superstition where a full moon comes out and we very often worry about getting a busy night. Right. One way oh, yeah. <laughs> in 872, a physician known as Ahmad ibn Tulun built a hospital in Cairo on the, that provided care to the insane, including music therapy. So as early as 800, we were looking into kind of alternative methods to deal with mental health issues. How do you start by approaching somebody with 
who's come to you with a mental health complaint? I think it's really important to approach the person individually. Everybody's different. And in the emergency department, we're not able to use music just because of the nature of our department and the emergency services. But what we practice is more of a narrative approach in regards to hearing the person's story, why they're in crisis, and then problem solving on how to address their needs in the least restrictive kind of environment. So where you work, it's pretty much exclusively limited to the emergency setting, correct? It is. I do other things outside of my work. Do you expect to usually get quick results in the emergency room, or are people often more referred out to other mental health professionals? I think it's important to acknowledge that emergency medicine and the emergency department is just that. It's for critical crisis. And sometimes people have this understanding that if they come to the emergency department, they're going to get treatment right then and there. And that's not the case in the sense of therapy. They do get therapeutic interventions. If someone is in crisis and they're not at risk of harming themselves or others, we do some supportive counseling and then help them get connected to a clinic. Sometimes we also do interventions that are more imminent because someone is at risk of hurting themselves or others. Let me just say, on a human side, when people come in to the emergency department with a mental health crisis, just having having a sympathetic ear, having someone who listens, and having someone there who can potentially offer results, you know, solutions, just hearing the process out, hearing what is bothering a person, that in itself, in my experience, is often very therapeutic, and people generally feel better having spoken with, well, I don't know about with me, but certainly having spoken with my mental health colleagues like Candelina. And our next step in the emergency department is whether it's safe to send that person back home or to a different environment or we decide that, you know, they need to be hospitalized. And it's really important to acknowledge that a lot of medical doctors will often say to me, how did you get all that information from that patient? I was in there for 30 minutes and they didn't want to tell me anything. And I think our training is very different. In emergency medicine, the doctors, the medical doctors, are very focused on treating the immediate need and in an emergency kind of fashion. And even though they're empathetic and they have a very great bedside manner, sometimes people kind of... I'm not that empathetic. (laughs) I think it's important to acknowledge that from a medical standpoint, people kind of are a little bit resistant to that. You know, if, if... the MD diagnoses me, then there, I must be damaged. And when I go into a room, it's very different because, you know, I'm here to help you. And can, can you tell me what brought you to the emergency department today? And then I just sit down and listen. And I do take some notes, but I, I don't carry a notepad. You know, I try not to use the computer in the room because I really want to hear the person and their story. So in in the ED, it's really fast-paced narrative and just letting them tell me their story. And sometimes in the severe cases, they have to go to a hospital, a psychiatric facility. But that's not always the case. That's really important to highlight. So let's talk about psychiatric hospitals very briefly. Um, Again, back around the 13, late 1200s, early 1300s, Bethlehem Royal Hospital in London, or just outside of London, one of the most famous, one of the oldest psychiatric hospitals, started admitting mental patients originally under this Islamic model to provide music therapy, to provide activities, believing that you couldn't just lock people up 
and wait for them to get better. Uh, of course, overcrowding being what it was, this eventually led to it being known colloquially, colloquially as bedlam, which is become a crossword yeah, byword. That, that's uh, it used to be a saying. We don't hear it as much anymore. But if you talk to like a sixty or seventy year old, oh, it's gone to bedlam, I'm, which is I'm sure overcrowded with crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was the literal definition at the time that that saying oh, that was. Saying. And, and this is, I think, Josh, a good example of how mental health care has been kind of stigmatized over time. Like, this is a long history of pointing to not even the people, but the healthcare facility and saying that that's a bad place. You know, times have changed, but times have not changed that much. To be fair, today, I think mental health is still underfunded, and there's just not enough resources for the amount of, I don't know, mental health needs that are in our um, communities. Yeah, that old overcrowding problem has turned into... Maybe it'll come back. Bedlam well, will be back as yeah. a... I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... I hope time. not. As a saying, not as... That. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> as a saying in raising awareness is what I, what I mean. Clarification, clarification. clarification. Right, right. That, that'd be like saying, well, things have just gone to Cook County. Um, <laughs> there's different facilities that provide different services. And even if someone is on a 5150, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go to an inpatient psychiatric facility. And an inpatient psychiatric facility is a locked unit or hospital, and it is really difficult to keep someone past 72 hours unless they are really in crisis and they need to stay longer. That fear of if I if I say I'm I'm in crisis and I can't take care of myself or I'm going to hurt myself, I'm going to get locked up forever. It really is not true. There are crisis residential programs, a group housing kind of program situation where they do a lot of treatment while they're living in an open, unlocked facility environment. Then there, of course, is intensive outpatient programs. And then, of course, there's group therapy and individual therapy, which are often utilized uh, when people are at a more stable presentation with their symptoms. And for our travelers out there, the 5150 statute is, applies to California, and every state has their own interpretations of 5150 and how that procedure is exactly carried out. So, or did we say what a 5150 is? 5150 is a is a law that allows a mental health professional to place a temporary involuntary hold on a person in a mental health crisis who is a danger to him or herself or a danger to others until you know, further treatment and further assessment have been have taken place and kind of clear them off of that. This uh, need for a temporary hold when a person needs to be kept hospitalized to protect them from themselves or from others. Candelina, there is some science behind that 48-hour window, correct? In that when a when a person goes through such a mental health crisis where they're acutely dangerous to themselves or others that we i think the majority of people who who get to that point can be either counseled or helped fairly well in that 48 hour window it's okay. because usually within 23 hours we can determine if someone is having somewhat of a breakthrough and, and the crisis or the risk factors are decreasing. 
right. and we can continue to do some work within that unit and then transition them to a community mental health setting, whether it's a clinic or outpatient services um, to follow the patient or the individual. But sure. you're, you're right. So they're called stabilization units and they are locked because the person is on a 5150 and they can hold someone up to 72 hours. Sure. So this is highly analogous to something that you're really familiar with, Josh, which is, and, and myself as well, which is the medical intensive care unit, is we bring them into the ICU as early as possible to, to do the most benefit on the front end. But once they come in, our goal is to get them out of there as soon as possible in a, in a stable, healthy condition. I'm glad that you keep bringing up sort of this humane care, these different, because we used to really not treat people with mental health issues of any sort well, ranging from demonic possession. Then you usually there's been a lot of religious overtones with any kind of mental health disorders. In fact, in the U.S., our proud tradition of mental health care started after the Salem Witch Trials, mm -hmm. another fun time period to jump to. Uh, New England Puritan minister Cotton Mather, which is a good New England name. Yeah, yeah. Cotton Mather's and well known. Yeah. And, yeah, so he actually was plagued with guilt over the results of these witch trials, and he broke with superstition, and he said, you know, there's actually physical explanations for mental illness rather than demonic explanations. And around the same time, over in London, a physician, William Batty, which is a ironically amusing name, published his own paper on madness, and he was calling for treatments to be utilized on rich and poor mental patients alike, because basically the only way you could be crazy was if you were poor. If you were rich, you were eccentric, sure. or you were simply kept on some family estate far out of the side of the public eye. If you were poor, you were locked in the attic, you were chained, you were really left to fend for yourself. And William Batty had the Batty idea of let's give everybody good mental health support. And Cotton said, yeah, I burned a couple too many people as witches. I'm on board with this plan. <laughs> to be fair, back in the 1700s and 1800s, uh, medical treatments in general were just a little bit harsher than sure. what they are today. We cured people with mercury. For, you know, <laughs> remember back in the days we prescribed mercury for um, <laughs> <was it> syphilis? <laughs> We should all well, we also prescribed cocaine for cough, right. oh, yeah. and we used to run swords through people for tuberculosis. So, you know, it, there's been a touch of medical advancement. So let's pause a moment and, and detour. Ward, Santosh, do either of you have an international mental health experience you'd like to share? Well, I just like, want to say, and Catalina, please feel free to weigh in. I just Traveling in general is, let's think about all the stressors. Sleep cycles are disturbed. Usually travel for fun, but you know, not everyone does. Sometimes people travel because of life events like funerals or even weddings can be incredibly stressful. But traveling is expensive. So all those things and culture shock, you know, th these things can all kind of destabilize what used to be a stable situation for a, you know, for a person with or without mental health issues. It's important to also acknowledge all the things you have to do before traveling, right? So you have to, if you have pets, you have to prepare for caring for your pets. If you have children, you know, are your children going to go with you? How are you going to arrange for child care, um, whether it's personal or uh, professional travel? 
And when you talk about stress, I mean, you know, the economic factor, taking time off work, if it's a crisis situation, whether it's a family emergency or or maybe you need to go to a conference because you have to renew your license, um, you know, the financial hardship could be taking time off work and covering your shifts because there might be a shortage of staff um, or because you uh, may not have enough vacation time in the banks. I mean, those are all additional anxiety-provoking situations. Um, and preparing, giving yourself enough time. You, a lot of people work up to the day that they're flying out of town or leaving out of town, which doesn't give them a lot of time to kind of center or prepare for the trip itself. Well, you talked about traveling with pets being one worry, so I'll, I'm going to throw in Pepper a couple just the tips here. Oh, yeah. In terms of most dog-friendly countries, because I'm more of a dog person, presumably <laughs> cats as well, but... <laughs> One of the most dog-friendly countries is Germany, where you can actually see dogs very commonly in restaurants, in pubs. They're allowed off-leash. They're allowed on the train. Certain breeds have to be muzzled. But otherwise, if you're looking for a country to travel with small children and or pets, uh, Germany's not a bad place. And even if for some reason your dog does run away, which I have a husky, running away is a game. <laughs> But shelters in Germany don't put dogs to sleep. They actually will have acceptable living conditions, two dogs in one kennel, daily walks, heated indoor area, and working with volunteers. And citizens in Germany actually pay a dog tax in order to avoid having to put dogs down. That's amazing. Oh, oh that's, that's wonderful. That's lovely, yeah. Yeah. And German will, Germany won't put down your small children either, which is wonderful. Uh no, no, they'll try and make sure they get a good home. Yes. They have volunteers, <laughs> behavioral training, heated indoor areas. <laughs> Two to a kennel. <laughs> no more than that. We wanted to go a little bit of a different angle, and I want everybody listening right now to go back and listen to our, uh, our wonderful episode on altitude medicine, because mine, I always like to bring things back to the biology. And, I, you know, actually... Uh, Candelina, I've got to tell you, CBT helps a lot here because mm -hmm. I've, I've actually undergone CBT for my own ADHD and I was able to kind of conceptualize around, oh, why do I feel down? Oh, okay, I'm at elevation. I haven't eaten today. Oh, I forgot to eat today because my appetite is thrown off. And so that type of feedback therapy and cognitive therapy can help along with pharmaceuticals and a steady diet and getting your sleep proper. Sure. And, and Josh, I think we've spoken about this particular disorder before where the feedback cues in our environment are very important to tell us who we are, where we are, what we're doing. And when that gets shifted around too much, we can have something called dissociative fugue. And this is a kind of extreme where it is it is not a psychosis per se, but you actually forget who you are and what you're doing because you are in a foreign land and you're experiencing so many stresses that that judgment part of your brain in the frontal lobe along with your you know parietal cortex trying to form associations gets thrown off and says you know I'm a completely different person <laughs> well famously Agatha Christie suffered from a dissociative fugue 
when she disappeared for, I don't know, like a week. Sure. <laughs> and this can be brought on by travel stresses, uh, of course. And, and this is this just tells you how important uh, the environment is on uh, providing a uh, stable mental health. At the end of the day, these are just synapses firing, and they need all the same cues in order to work properly as our lungs, our guts, our heart, and everything else. So one of the more famous psychiatrists and mental health professionals is Benjamin Rush, which, does the name bring anybody to mind? Are we talking about the amazing neurological center, Rush Medical Center in Chicago? I don't know. I'd say amazing. (laughs) I trained down the street from Rush, so yes. (laughs) We all have some memories. Oh, yeah. Benjamin Rush was made treasurer of the U.S. Mint by President Adams. He was also one of the earliest advocates of humane treatment for the mentally ill in 1812, and he published his Medical Inquiries and Observations on Diseases of the Mind, which is the very first textbook on American psychiatry and moral therapy. And yes, Rush Medical School is named for him. Kentalina, what what made you choose this field? Do people ever get better that you've seen? I've seen people get better for various reasons. Uh, I had someone very close to me. Originally, when I got into the field, I did addiction counseling to help those struggling with addiction. Um, And then later in my career, someone very close to me uh, disclosed that they were a victim of trauma, childhood trauma, put the puzzle together on why they behaved or Um, were who they were as an adult. And the difference between a master's and a doctorate clinician is that a a doctorate can do testing, psychological testing, whereas an LCSW or an MFT, which marriage and family license, they just do counseling. They do intervention and counseling, whereas a psychologist can do testing in addition to counseling. I've always been fascinated with why people do what they do and personality disorders. The more personality disorder, the the more exciting it is to work with the individual. It's not easy work, but it's very enlightening in understanding why people do what they do. So that's why I got into the field. I've been very lucky in the in the work that I have done uh, that I have not had anyone commit suicide under my care. Um, and not to say that those providing services uh, to individuals who have committed suicide, that their treatment was wrong, because sometimes it's not preventable, because the person has very, very strong intent. And that's why we use the 5150 to help decrease that opportunity. Um, well, in fact, uh, I mean, you're, you're a bit lucky in never having seen a, a person who followed through on suicide, because it is a, it's quite a terrible problem in our country. Well, I've had people attempt, and there's a difference. Oh, right, right, right. But I ha- I've had people attempt, but not pass. I There have been interventions in place that have stopped them in fully carrying out the uh, intent, and I've, I have been lucky. But I have had people try, but not successful, I think is a better way to say that. About stigma, too, that they think exactly. that individuals with mental health are people of color or people of... So, you know, low socioeconomic status, and you kind of talked about this, Josh, is that that's not true. And that's one of the great things about Covered California, but also known nationally as Obamacare, is that it's an opportunity to provide mental health to individuals at low-income levels. And, you know, poverty level is 
you know, if you make less than $25,000 a year, you're poor and you cannot sustain housing in this California, in this general area, unless you are out in the country somewhere. And this automatically puts you at risk for the stresses which, uh, which make us mentally ill. I'm so glad right. you brought up the issue of stigma, Candelina, because there is a lot of stigma regarding mental health. There is nothing worse than when on the other, after a, after an examination and after a careful history and exam, and I've, I've determined that the issue might be psychiatric. The, the one line that I get that I just, it still to this day bothers me is, oh, you mean it's all in my head? <laughs> you, know, you know, we've all heard that before, and it's 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 so much more than it's all in your head. It's psychiatric. There's that that stigma of hey, it's all in your head. Just cut it out. Is still being carried by a lot of people in our communities, and it's not helpful in terms of getting them the care and the treatments that they need. Well, that's why they did lobotomies, right? That you know, they thought if they could operate on the brain, they could solve the problem, right? Right, and that's. Not what we do today. Please. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I'm just saying, it's, I mean, it's a long, you, you hear people all the time. Uh, I've had people tell me, please don't diagnose me depressed. And I will say, well, well, why? You're clearly depressed. Depressed. What's wrong with depression? And they will say, well, can you just say I'm anxious? A mental health diagnosis is only a label to uh, symptoms. It's only a label to symptoms. It's just, and I use this with patients and clients right. all the time. It's like if saying they have a cough. Right. It's a label to their symptoms, and I use this all the time, this, to diagnose them so the appropriate treatment could be done. It's just like diabetes. Someone that has diabetes can manage it with self-talk, coaching, choices on how they eat, how they exercise, the people they surround themselves with, when they go grocery shopping, and sometimes they need medical interventions such as medication, but sometimes not because these other interventions may work. Sometimes they need medications for short periods of time until they can learn these other interventions and wean themselves off of the medications with medical care. That's really important. It's the same thing with mental health. Sometimes people need medications to help them deal with whatever the cause is for their symptoms. Unless they get to the root and figure out how to cope with or overcome the symptoms and the situation, they're going to be on the cycle. But diabetes is more readily acceptable diagnosis than someone that may have depression. What kind of people should be going to the emergency room for mental health? What results can they expect in the emergency room setting? So when you come to the emergency department, you can expect that you're going to get what we call medical clearance. In other words, you're not hallucinating because of a brain tumor or a, you know, low sodium. A UTI, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is this is your role, Ward, actually. That's my, yeah. So you, you go ahead and you're, you're kind of first. You're going to determine that they haven't ingested something. <laughs> right. Or, uh, or if you or cut yourself the, you know, the, the injuries have been dealt with. And we usually have someone that is qualified, whether it's a security standby or it's an ED technician. I have a green belt in Hapkido. <laughs> uh, but when I go in the room, I ask questions. Me, personally, I stay away from the how do you feel question 
because that's a lot of provoking because the patient will say, well, what do you mean? How do I feel? Uh, I already told that other doctor how I feel. That's why I'm talking to you. Yes, we we do love being nothing if not redundant. (laughs) So I don't use that statement. I don't use that questioning. I, I use the statement, as I mentioned earlier, is what brought you to the emergency department today? I'm here to help you. And then I listen to them. And how I use CBT in that process, as I mentioned, is a combination of kind of narrative and then CBT is I start asking challenging questions in a very supportive way. Uh, have you ever felt this way before? And when they answer yes, what stopped you from getting to the point that you're at today? So I can start introducing them to start thinking about what has worked in the past and what we can utilize to help them be safe now. And so I start challenging that belief system. And let me just say that in today's, in 2016, the narrative around emergency mental health crises, the, the conversation has changed a little bit, and we've gotten a little bit more conservative after, you know, Denver, Orlando, uh, these acts of, uh, acts of violence by, by people with, you know, supposed mental health issues. And that's why the 23-hour crisis uh, stabilization units are so helpful. Let's round out with a lightning round, I suppose, (laughs) and then we'll pick up next time. We always like to end with a little travel, just the tip, somewhere not medical. Where have you been or would you go, and what would you recommend that somebody see there, that somebody should make a point, take time out of their day to go and see? Well, if you're going to go locally, just getting out to our national parks, I think there's so much relaxation that can happen in our parks, just being out of the city and out of the building environment. So I, I think we'll we'll bring it to a close there. Um, we will be back again with more on mental health Twitter. I'm at Dr. J Comedy. Santosh is at Toshi Fro. Ward is at Travel and Medicine. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. We now have a Patreon page. If you'd like to support us mentally, spiritually, or monetarily, <laughs> thank you, Candelina. You're welcome, guys. As always, we love your comments, concerns, questions, and feedback. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Patreon. We are wherever you want to get a hold of us online. We have some sort of presence. And until next time, guys, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Squirrel. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi, guys. Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. And special guest. Hi, I'm Dr. Deshmukh. I'm an adult psychiatrist, and I'm happy to be joining the show today. And it is an absolute pleasure to have you. Dr. Deshmukh, Deshmukh uh, how the hell did you, you say that? Oh, just call me Priyanka. <laughs> do, do you, it's Deshmukha? No, it's just Deshmukh. But, you know, Priyanka is good. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue to psych everyone out. We've already had a chance to speak briefly with a psychologist and social worker. We thought it might be nice to get the perspective of a psychiatrist as well. So let me ask, before we get into history or anything else, what is psychiatry? What does a psychiatrist actually do? So um, 
to give you kind of a brief idea about psychiatry, it's a branch of medicine that focuses on diagnosing, treating, and preventing mental, emotional, and behavioral disorders. Um, and a psychiatrist, one who practices psychiatry, is a uh, medical doctor, either an MD or a DO, who specializes in mental health. Are there different kinds of psychiatrists, such as pediatric, geriatric, you know, what, what's your particular field? Oh, there's definitely, there's different branches, child psychiatrists or pediatric psychiatrists, geriatric psychiatrists, um, and I'm an adult psychiatrist. And there is also a Yes, yes, but who do you treat? Put a bone. Who do I treat? <laughs> Adults, uh, generally 18 and up to 65 to 70 years of age, uh, ranging from anxiety disorders to, de from, to depression, psychotic symptoms. What would you say is maybe the strangest treatment you've ever given or heard of? The strangest? The strangest. Not necessarily practiced by you, but just I'm sure you've come across stories in, in your career. What is the oddest, the, a treatment that just didn't make any sense to you, but people seem to believe in? It's not very odd, but I think uh, ECT is something that you don't see very often these days. I don't know if that's... Well, I find absolutely shocking. <laughs> but, but when I say odd, have you ever considered using cereal as a mental health tool? Cereal? As in yeah, cereal. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. <laughs> most, important, <laughs> most important meal of the day. The reason I ask is that cereal was really only invented to deal with what was felt to be a mental disorder at the time. Priyanka, have you ever heard of the name John Harvey Kellogg? No, no I actually have not. <laughs> have you ever heard of Kellogg's cereal? Yes, I have. Well, that is the man who created it. So in the 18th and 19th centuries, the Western world just was very, very prudish and Victorian, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and it was the idea, in fact, the Victorians were known for being prude because the whole idea is that even having lustful desires was terrible. But in the United States, one of the most ardent anti-masturbators, 
was a doctor named John Harvey Kellogg from Michigan. And in order to prevent all these lustful thoughts and really a whole host of things, bashfulness, fickleness, mood swings, bad posture, stiff joints, and epilepsy, Kellogg's solution thought a healthy diet. He said meat and certain flavorful foods increase sexual desire, so plainer food, especially bran, could curb that desire. So he basically ran a sanitarium, an old psych hospital back in the day, and all the patients basically got to eat all day long was his cereal, just bowls of cornflakes for every so him and his his brother partnered up, and they tried different sorts of grains. They tried rice, they tried wheat, they tried bran, and they were trying to figure out, you know, ultimately they settled on cornflakes because, well, he wanted ready-to-eat, easy, healthy, anti-masturbatory morning meals. <laughs> <laughs> the final component being absolutely vital. Absolutely. And Will, his brother, had a lot less interest in purity of the diet and more business sense. And he said, you know what, this is great as hospital food, but if we just add a little bit of sugar, we can send this out and sell this to the masses. And his brother's like, no, 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 we just need to use this to stop people touching themselves. That's wrong and sinful. And his brother ended up adding sugar to it and... He founded the Kellogg Company and continued to succeed to this day, whereas I believe John Harvey Kellogg's next step was a yogurt enema, and really he didn't get too much further. Oh, dear. <laughs> Darn. Ah, the wonders of medical history. But yeah, so cereal was originally invented to curb sexual desire or excessive sexual desire that was thought to be a mental health disorder. So the next time you see your child reaching for a colorful mascot and crunchy marshmallows and berries, tell them, we don't want our daughters turning tricks. Their <laughs> lucky charms are not for just anyone. <laughs> so I, I thought before we got into some of the, the more serious mental health things to show just how far we've come over the years. So obviously we don't really consider just sexual gratification a mental health disorder anymore, or at least not without some some key associated other symptoms. What are the most common mental health issues that you actually see in your practice? I mainly do outpatient psychiatry, so I'm dealing with more stable patients. That's not always true, but definitely more stable than inpatient psychiatric patients. Usually the bread and butter of my practice is patients with depression and anxiety and also mood disorders such as bipolar disorder. Some patients who have ADHD and require treatment with stimulants. So that's really the bulk of my practice. So you spend a lot of time listening to uh, basically other people's problems, fears, and worries. Uh, how does that weigh on you? Like, how do, how do you deal with that at the end of the day? 
I do hear a lot of people's most intimate problems, their worries, uh, you know, secrets that they haven't told their partners or what's weighing down on them. Um, it is, uh, and it is easy to really uh, take that in and take that home with you. But you, it's always good to set your own boundaries. The same things that you tell your patients about setting boundaries, uh, wrapping up those feelings and, um, you know, trying to find a way to put them aside, whether it be listening to music or, or listening to an audiobook on your drive home. I think that's, that's something that helps me relax. Now, let me ask, are you one of those people who's able to watch shows about your field or listen to programs about psychiatry without it making you, pardon the term, insane? <laughs> <laughs> It depends to a certain degree. If it's a very something very serious about um, you know mental mental issues or even substance substance abuse, I generally kind of lose interest with stuff like that. But if it's a comedy, and that that kind of goes back to how I cope, I love watching comedies. Uh, anything that's funny. An example of that would be Scrubs. I used to love watching that show. Yay! It was just so Scrubs funny. was a lot of fun. <laughs> yes. So you what know. about? Have you seen the movie Analyze This? Oh, I did, and I really loved. Is that at all an accurate representation of what you do? Um, no, not really. It's quite. It's you know. It's definitely an exaggeration. Parts of it definitely you, I can relate to. Which parts? The part where you don't talk no more. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you have this pretty well balanced. What What made you decide to be a psychiatrist out of all the available specialties? What drew you to diseases of the mind? That's a good question. One of the people, really, that influenced me in my life was my father. My father's a psychiatrist, and as a child, just listening to him take calls, and I would be so fascinated by what he would be saying on the phone And before I knew what medications were, and I'd hear him say, oh, five milligrams of Haldol with Ativan, and I was very amazed. I said, wow, he's the smartest man in the whole world. <laughs> so so that was one of my drives. And another was studying in India. Uh, I was there for medical school. Even in the United States, there's a lot of stigma involved with mental illness, but even more so in, in a country like India. And remembering a day when in the monsoon season, helping village village people who were had lost a lot of crops or wild their animals in in this really horrific monsoon, and just seeing how the emotions that they went through, the sadness and the pain, the anxieties that they had, and felt I felt that boy they really didn't have much support as social work or having someone to talk to, any therapy. It's more like, okay, let's address the physical ailments, but there was really not much in the mental health um, um, aspect. And that was something that really I felt, wow, there's there's no one they have to talk to. And I remember not only as, as a medical student doing what I was, you know, doing, you know, handing out medications, helping in that regard, but I also took the time to ask them how they were doing emotionally. And that was something uh, that was very rewarding, and I, it was one of the times that I realized, oh, I think I really would love to go into mental health. It would be something that I would be 
uh, happy to do the rest of my life. It was a volunteer project, and it was just to help give out, uh, you know, dispense medications, make sh just do general checkups, see if there's anybody was hurt. So it was just a voluntary project, and just going there, you know, my own experience going there on a bus. There was times where the the waters were so high, the the bridge was almost, I mean, the water was almost at the level of the bridge, having to get down from the bus and making sure that it was safe to go ahead and thinking, you know, how terrifying it was for me to be experiencing that, imagining people who'd actually lost, lost, uh, you know, their life's worth and as far as crops and livestock and what they must be experiencing. So let me ask, what, what were your coping strategies for that kind of stressful situation? And what kind of strategies did, coping strategies did you notice among the people who live with that sort of thing on a day-to-day -day basis? What I did see and I thought was, was fascinating was a lot of uh, just peer support, a family support. There was a lot more unity. I felt than you would see if there wasn't a natural disaster occurring. So community it would be talking to a family member or having that social support. But I think in a professional setting, it would be uh, the ability to talk to a therapist or a psychiatrist and have an ongoing therapy session. And, I and did you notice anybody like this in some of these more rural areas? Was there the equivalent of a witch doctor or a wise woman or just an elder? A village elder, as long as I'm coming up with fantasy Dungeons and Dragons stereotypes. <laughs> I wouldn't say per se if there was one particular person, but I think definitely places where there's a lot more stigma involved with mental uh, mental illness. The concept of let's keep it in the family is definitely there. I think there's that idea that oh, this is something that needs to be handled in the family. It shouldn't get out. Family members will will go out of their way to help that person or that's good and bad it's always good to have so family support but at the same time there's uh, mental illnesses that can't be treated just by that that needs there needs to be a professional to address those issues now you said earlier you work primarily as an outpatient or an in the clinic psychiatrist yes, yes that's correct have you ever worked in an inpatient setting, in a mental health hospital or asylum? Uh, yes, I have, actually. I've um, worked in residency. I'd worked uh, for a few months in a state facility, uh, which is very different from what you'd find in a more um, inpatient psychiatric ward in a community hospital, hospital or a university-based hospital. Um, for now, it, was it anything like... Say, let me let me pick something our listeners may be familiar with, Arkham Asylum at <laughs> in Batman. Or for our older listeners, um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I mean, how how accurate were those depictions of an inpatient mental health ward? In the past, there was a lot less regulations about you know what would happen in asylums. Most of the point, sometimes there was abuse in these asylums. In the 19th century, there was a lot of modernization of these asylums, and it was turned more into inpatient psychiatric facilities. So the word asylum isn't really used readily anymore, just because of the nature 
inpatient treatment, the course that it's taken. In the past, uh, there was more of a long-term treatment as far as you know, months and months of a person being, being in facilities like that. Nowadays, the aim is more for short-term treatment, you know, three days, and you, you look to discharge the patient home. Fixing a mental health issue in three days sounds a lot like a sitcom wrapping up all its problems in 30 minutes. <laughs> How often do you actually see that happen without the assistance of, say, Danny Tanner or Carl Winslow? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's three days definitely does sound like a short time, but I think now that we have a lot of intensive outpatient treatments available as well, Things that would have been uh, therapies that would have happened in an inpatient setting are now happening in an outpatient setting. So it's kind of a bridging program. Uh, you're in the hospital for three days. You're treated for the acute symptoms. But once you're discharged, there is great aftercare that's available. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about your experience during residency in an inpatient setting and that things are no longer called asylums, which... I'll admit, the part of me that wants to become Batman is a little disappointed in. <laughs> but that said, we haven't talked about what you actually do. So what does a typical day for you look like? When I'm on my outpatient duties, it's usually from 9 to 5. I usually will see my bulk of my day consists of follow-up patients, meaning patients I've already seen, uh, I would say about 20 to 30 percent of my day consists of one-hour new patient evaluations. More stable people, I've, uh, patients I have seen over a course of time, they come in for, um, you, you know, medication um, adjustments or for just monitoring of certain side effects, refills. So that mm -hmm. would be my follow-ups. But there's sometimes, you know, my day when I'm expecting it to go pretty smoothly and uh, somebody I've seen generally very stable comes in with new symptoms, not doing really well, and uh, comes in feeling suicidal. So, you know, then I have to, to help that person. It can be quite varied. You know, I can go into my day thinking, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake today. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm seeing so-and-so, and then they come yeah. in with, you know, everything under the sun, and it's like, yeah. wait. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you feeling this way? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it's quite varied. Uh, one of my, can I share a story? Uh, yes, or? please. Okay. Yeah, please. So one of the first uh, time, I think it was about a month into me starting as an attending Young young guy, 27-year-old, who come, came in with his, his mom for schizophrenia. I'm looking at the medical history. I said, oh, looks like he's very stable. He's been on medications and a transfer patient to me. I said, oh, okay, this is going to be great. Comes in, hadn't been taking meds for a long time, and became very acutely psychotic in my office. Oh, and, no. Yeah, I became very psychotic, and I couldn't find the panic button because I didn't know where it was. I had just started working. I was oh, like, yeah. oh, no, <laughs> this that, isn't good. Your, your equivalent of code blue. Y yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, this 
doesn't seem like it's going in the right direction. So he get, started escalating because the mom said he's not taking meds. So he's ha- having these delusions against his mom, feeling like mom was the devil. And he, uh, so I had his, the, a therapist also come in with me. The door was, uh, good thing the door was kind of open, halfway open. And he just, we didn't expect this. He got so agitated, just suddenly then hit his mom across across my table and over, you know, on her, her eye. He socked her in the eye. Aww. So that that was very scary and, um, you know, pushed the door open, pushed the therapist aside and kind of ran out of my office. That was pretty scary. And I always remember uh, one of my attendings in residency saying, you always have to have your guard up. You can never get too comfortable. Uh, you know, you always have to have your antennas, he would say, on alert. Right. Watch, watch for signs. And I still see him. He comes to me. Sometimes I, I kind of pray. I'm like, oh, please don't come today. But he does. He oh, no. <laughs> but no, I, no more breaks in your office. I'm yeah. But we okay. don't see him. I don't see him in my office. I see him with security uh, in okay. a conference room outside my office. So, but but he's doing he's he's doing better. He has his, you know, ups and downs. But in general, he's he he's doing better than when he first came in a couple years ago. If if a person's acutely psychotic in your room, that's just as dangerous as someone crumpling to the ground and clutching their chest. Definitely, yeah. I would. Yeah. Uh, that's a good analogy. <laughs> I definitely yeah, yeah. be. Well, I'm glad you mentioned treatments, Santosh, because I thought it'd be fun to dip back into my favorite historical period. Oh, man. You're talking about your <laughs> steampunk period. Priyanka, and and I've already buried the lead here, but do you know when we actually started using drug treatments for mental health diseases? Um, The actual date? Uh, well, I can tell you that uh, drug treatments, they began in the 1800s. Uh, during the Victorian era. Uh, Oh, you already (laughs) knew it. You just said Josh's very favorite words. (laughs) I I am a sucker for the Victorian period. And yes, drug treatments of mental health disorders. One of the things that does help to distinguish psychiatry is the, the ability to prescribe medications, correct? That's something that other mental health professionals can't do? Yes, that is absolutely correct. So you have the 1800s, 1821, in fact, to thank. And before before that time, and even in the early 1800s, the only treatment for most things was tonic. You know, you'd have people riding around in their Wizard of Oz carts <laughs> and peddling oil from various exotic animals right. as a cure-all. Uh, or which is where or we get, from religious sources or artifacts as well. Right, and you know, this is where you get snake oil salesmen and things like that because people would say, oh, you know, you have a cough, use my magic elixir, it'll clear that up, and you can rub it on your joints and be dancing for days. And, <laughs> you know, all sorts of other old-timey phrases. And the idea behind this thought, in case you've ever wondered why it used to come up in so many of these older movies, is that tonic reflected a understanding of the time that in order to work the best, in order to work properly, your organs needed to be firm or tone. 
So having, you know, not just having like washboard abs, but having a washboard mm-hmm. heart, some washboard kidneys, you know, <laughs> excellent, excellent tone in all your organs. So a tonic was just a drink made to tone up your muscles. And in this case, those organs were nerves. So this was really it. It was just, you know, drop something into a fancy glass bottle, grow a hipstery mustache, and get a gypsy wagon, and you could sell your cures. But in 1821, English chemist William Thomas Brand discovered the element lithium. Nice. So this is almost 200 years later, and lithium is still... It sounds like a pretty commonly used medication. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it definitely is. It's a very, it's a very good mood stabilizer. It's still used for patients uh, to reduce suicidal ideations. And do we know how it works? In a nutshell, you know, kind of layman's term would be to help correct the chemical imbalance in the brain chemicals that are responsible for mood swings, responsible for the uh, the mania and the depression that a person experiences. So lithium is one of the more common drugs. What are some of the other common treatments that you've either prescribed yourself or seen given, and for what conditions? Uh, like I was saying earlier, the bulk of my treatment, or the bulk of the population that I see would be depression and anxiety. And for those, antidepressants are first-line treatment. Some examples, antidepressants of the different classes, uh, so SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they're used to treat major depression, panic disorders, PTSD, various types of anxieties such as generalized anxiety, OCD, eating disorders. So, you know, antidepressants have a wide role in treating both anxiety and depression. Then you have another class of medications, antipsychotics, which are used to treat psychotic symptoms like delusions, hallucinations, uh, so people with schizophrenia, and also mood disorders, stabilized mood with a, a bipolar disorder. Examples of antipsychotics would be Haldol, Zyprexa, Abilify. Then you also have mood stabilizers. Lithium is in that category, which is used for a bipolar disorder. And you also have stimulant medications that are used to treat ADHD, so uh, Adderall, Ritalin, uh, would be examples of those. I just want to play a very quick game called Drug or Harry Potter Spell. <laughs> <laughs> Actual drug or Harry Potter Spell. All right. So, Abilify. That's an actual drug. Yeah. Anapneo. Um, what? Anapneo. A-N-A-P-N-E-O. That's a Harry Potter Spell. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, do, you know, there you go. do you know what that spell is for? Oh, no, I do not. For sleep apnea. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's an apneo. It, it, in, in fact, it is, it is a healing spell that clears the target person's throat if it is blocked. There are so many medical conditions that would make excellent band names or drug names that sound like Harry Potter spells. Zyprexa is another good one. 
That yeah. would make a fantastic spell. Right? It would, yeah. yeah. What, what kind of spell would Zyprexa be? So Hermione's pointing her wand, because she's really the only trustworthy magician. Sure. <laughs> Hermione, who knows what they're doing, yes. Hermione points her wand at, at one of your patients and says, Zyprexa, what happens? Um, I think they instantly fall asleep. I, something with zebras. I think it would bend a zebra. These drugs, they're Harry Potter spells now. J.K. Rowling's brought them into the universe. Hermione points her wand and says, Abilify, or Zyprexa. <laughs> what does this spell do? Um, How is it going to affect somebody? It doesn't have to be exactly the same as the drug. So if she points it to somebody and just says it and, and, uh, in a spell form, I think the person's thoughts would be more organized. I would, you know, they're they're able to kind of think correctly and would clear their delusions instantaneously. Uh, their paranoia would go away right away. And uh, if it was pointed towards schizophrenic, their IQ would go up a little bit too. Back Ooh, to what interesting. Back to what it was <laughs> before they uh, had their first psychotic break. And okay, so that would be that'd be Abilify. What about or the spell? Or Zyprexa. Oh, that Zyprexa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What what about the spell fluoxetine? Um, so you pointed to someone, they're in my office, I see someone profusely crying, and can I be the one wearing the wizard hat? Oh, yeah, yes, please. Yes. And put, on your wizard, put on your wizard robe and hat. <laughs> I say, hold on one moment, as this person is crying in front of me, I open my drawer, I put on this blue hat with a wand, and I say, fluoxetine. And that person will instantaneously stop crying, uh, have a smile on their face, and say, hey, that cloud above me has been lifted. Hooray. <laughs> See, In Harry Potter world, there could be a literal cloud above you. So. Yes. <laughs> See, I, I would use the name quite literally. Fluoxetine for me would be the spell to get respiratory illnesses out of oxen. Fluoxetine. Mm. I would I would dispel respiratory illnesses from from bovine. I, I see a lot of demented patients. I'm sure if I walked in in a wizard robe and hat, some of them would just take it right in stride. You know, we've talked a lot about how stereotypical or media portrayals of psychiatry are less than accurate in certain cases. So what would you say is the most common misconception about what you do? Or, you know, what's, what is TV getting wrong? What is it getting right? What does everybody know about psychiatry that is completely off base? <laughs> <laughs> I think that one of the misconceptions is, well, you hear on TV saying, oh, I'm going to go see my shrink. She has never shrunk in a single head. No, Don't no. worry. <laughs> Not shrunk in a single head. You're right. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes I feel like uh, when patients, uh, they come to our clinic, they're very confused because of such severe symptoms and they're trying to get treatment. And they see a therapist first, referred to see a psychiatrist, but really don't have an understanding of why or who they're seeing. So when they're telling me their story again, they're like, "What? I, I just told 
I just told the doctor yesterday, I mean, who are you? <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Then I said, and sure. then I'm like, well, who are you? No. Yeah. <laughs> These are some of the common misconceptions. And then I'll let them know that, well, somebody who you saw prior to me was a therapist. And because of the severity of your symptoms, because of the inability to function or enjoy the quality of your life, the therapist was concerned that you may need to see a doctor or a psychiatrist such as myself um, to see if medications would be a treatment option that you'd be open to. So that's kind of what I would say like that real quick. <laughs> sure. So this is a, this is kind of a tough skill. This is the field of psychopharmacology where you have to take in what is wrong with the patient, why they are doing what they're doing, for instance, in an acute setting, why they're having a, a psychotic break. So because how you would respond if they're taken a drug or ingested something is very different from if they have a chronic psychiatric illness and that particular illness has taken a turn. So uh, along with that, then you have to balance, okay, well, what have they taken recently? What's already in their system? How are my medications going to interact with the other ones that they have on board? It's true. It would depend on, you know, the origin of their symptoms or the reasons why, where, uh, you know, if it's alcohol intoxication, you definitely want to wait till their alcohol level comes down and reassess at that point. Uh, if it's uh, something chronic like schizophrenia, finding out what medications they were on, is it anything to do with medication non-compliance, um, needing an injectable or intramuscular injection because they're unable to cooperate with taking an oral medication. So Zyprex, Zyprex sublingual form, the Zytus, is very fast-acting and can be given to an agitated patient uh, of course, you have to watch out. They don't, you know, bite your finger off. So in that case, then you would which can happen. Right, <laughs> right. You would give them an injectable of, of, of Halidol, which will be very sedating quickly. They don't call me Doc Eight Fingers for nothing. <laughs> so you definitely have to be on your toes as a diagnostic in terms of figuring out why someone is acting a particular way. It's not all how it looks like in the crazy commercials, kids. It is quite a bit of training that goes into this. <laughs> yes. And that, and that wraps up the, the actual psych portion. I would just like to say just a message regarding psychiatry and, and stigma involved with it, I would I would definitely say if a loved one or close friend who you feel has uh, some issues psychologically or emotional distress, you know, to give that suggestion to see a psychiatrist, you'll be surprised as to how many people in um, in our population who go untreated and who lead lives that are, you know, not of the best quality. And uh, when they are treated, you know, they say, wow, why didn't I get treated for depression years earlier? So being able to uh, to recognize somebody that you know having an issue and suggesting them to get that professional mental health, uh, you may be helping somebody. Yeah, and earlier the better, uh, which is how we begin our intervention part of the show. Josh, Priyanka and I have brought you here. 
Gotcha. Get him. No. Maybe a bit of a difference. We are moving on to another part of the show, but I'm afraid it, there's not going to be any interventions today. No. So, yeah, as uh, I think as we talked before with Kundalina, so earlier intervention, the better. And never be afraid to ask for help. You know, you, we treat our heart, we treat our lungs. So take the time to treat your brain right. So the last thing we're going to trouble you for is we always like to ask a little bit of travel of our, our guests. Do you have a favorite travel story or a place that if someone's going to leave home tomorrow and travel the world to see one thing, where should they go? Where are you sending them? The place that really is close to me in my heart is uh, Bali. That's where I would send somebody who needed some uh, you know, spiritual uplifting if they weren't in a very good place or just wanted to relax for a trip. And especially central area, uh, Ubud, if people have seen this, but eat, love, and pray. Eat, yeah, pray, Julia Roberts. Eat, pray, love. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Eat, pray, love. Thank you. <laughs> right, you're doing it all out of order. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing it all wrong. That's where she goes to kind of rejuvenate herself uh, spiritually, and it was a wonderful experience for me, just being able to be in in the jungle and listen to the various noises, the monkeys, and you know, being able to just see all that greenery and be in this warm kind of temperature where you don't need a sweater and be able to kind of take all that in, be in warm waters and, and then have a massage. It was just so relaxing. And, and I think that's some place uh, that's very close to my heart and I would recommend visiting. Yeah. Well, you heard it here, folks. It sounds Bali Bali good. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's you can relax show. with a good podcast or two. I don't know. <laughs> Just suggesting. <laughs> Maybe you can relax by leaving us your ratings and reviews wherever your podcasts are found. It's quite cathartic. We love all your questions and comments. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Scare Scarespace. We're on Scarespace. <laughs> you can always find us at Travel Medicine Podcast on the side of your choice. We are also on Twitter. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. We do have a Patreon page if you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, and most importantly, financially. We do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash travel medicine so, or travel medicine podcast. Um, there are rewards if you donate. And we really love you even more than we already do. But until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.